the grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Well, it's been a rather inauspicious beginning to this year's season of Lent. What with uh, ice storms and power outages and bouts of sickness and last minute, hey, Paul, can you preach today? (laughs) Phone calls. But here we are, near enough to the beginning of another 40-day journey to Easter. Today, Christians all around the world are asking themselves the same basic question, how Will I get ready for Easter this year? How will I get ready for Easter, for resurrection, for good news, for hope, for the promise of life? How will I get ready to celebrate and follow a crucified yet risen Savior? Lent is a wilderness season. It is a testing season. Season. It is a time to take our faith out into the desert and see what remains and what is made more strong come Easter Sunday. Lent is a season for introspection, for reflection, for self-assessment, for pledging to do certain disciplines and habits, but also to refrain from doing other things, things which, frankly, church, we should have stopped doing years ago. But we aren't just pitching the chocolate and refraining from booze just because, just to cleanse our bodies for the fun of it. We're doing it to reclaim time and space in our lives so that we might better assess who God is and who we are because of it. And here at First Pres, we're marking the season of Lent each Sunday by beginning a new six-week preaching series we're calling simply Tested. Tested six weeks of stories from the Gospels that show us how Jesus, our Lord, was tested. How his faith in God's purposes, how his own identity as God's son was tried repeatedly by various circumstances and people, yet how Jesus alone remained faithful to God's covenant and call. We like to think that Jesus' temptations in the desert that we read right now were it. Like, boom, this is going to be a three-part test, Jesus. One, two, three, you passed all three, you passed the class, thank you very much, see you at graduation. But that's not how testing and trial works for human beings. As part of our spiritual upbringing, we don't get dragged out to the desert for a single three-question pass-fail quiz with the devil. Temptation and trial comes up every day, every week, every year. We are constantly reassessing what it means for us to follow God's will, and we are presented with countless opportunities to take matters into our own hands and forego the weightier matters of God's laws. The testing of our faith is a lifelong reality, not something we ever get a high enough grade on once to move on from. The same thing I want to argue was true for Jesus. While Jesus' testing in the wilderness is really important, as we'll see, it was not the last time he would be tempted by an easier way, by a more convenient path. In fact, what we see throughout the Gospels is a Jesus who is continually tested, yet crucially, 
without sin. A Jesus whose temptations resembled our own temptations, but a Jesus who remained faithful and therefore can be trustworthy as Savior and Redeemer. So for the next six weeks, let's consider the nature of what it means for Jesus to be tested. We'll look at the ways in which he was given opportunities to short-circuit the will of God, and together we'll discover how Jesus was tested as we are, yet how he remained faithful. Welcome to Tested. Today, we're going to head to Matthew chapter 4 to consider the story of Jesus' 40-day fast in the Judean highlands after his baptism. We're going to tag along where no disciple was fit to go. We're going to eavesdrop on Jesus being targeted by three very specific temptations. And we're going to consider what all of this means for us at the beginning of another Lenten journey in 2023. So if you've got your order of worship, or you've got your Bible there, uh, open it up to Matthew chapter 4 so you can follow along with us today. Uh, my kids enjoy hearing stories from my childhood. Uh, it doesn't come up uh, that often, but once in a while, I will hear myself say the phrase, when I was your age, I used to fill in the blank. Now let me be clear, it's not said in the tone that I can, you can sometimes adopt when talking to younger folks, you know, the tone, you know, kids have it so easy. Like, when I was eight, I used to have to drink a pot of coffee and then clock in at the foundry for third shift. You know, it's not like that. It's more like the kind of, uh, like opening a window into my past that my kids don't really have any other access to. They only know me as their father. They, they never met the Joey Novak who used to own a hulking set of street hockey goalie pads and who used to put those goalie pads on during the sweltering July summers in the city neighborhood in Mott Park so my neighbor friends and I could play hockey in the street. But when I show them pictures of me in my goalie pads, they get a little window into my childhood, a little glimpse into what I was like as a nine-year-old. Sometimes I tell them stories of the games my neighborhood friends and I used to play, the snow forts my sister Carmi and I dug out, the adventures we used to have at the Doyle Ryder Elementary School playground, which, by the way, in the 90s was the best playground in Genesee County, and the harrowing lives of our two cats who used to get packed up neatly into coolers when we pretended, which we pretended were cat carriers to take with us on our pretend cross-country trips, not realizing that coolers really do keep fresh air out. <laughs> and cats really do need fresh air to live. And thanks be to God, my mom was checking in on that poor animal and rescuing it from us. But, but one subset of stories that piques my kids' attention has to do with the times when I got into trouble. I know, it rarely happened. Once I told my older kids about the time that I kept on saying a word that my mother, their grandmother, didn't care for very much and warned me to stop saying, at, at which point I looked right at her and I slowly and loudly said it again. <laughs> Up to
to the upstairs bathroom, I was escorted to sit on the side of the clawfoot porcelain tub as my mother grabbed the half-worn green bar of Irish spring soap from the sink and popped it in my mouth, which she held for a few seconds before taking it out and calmly informing me that she had just washed the rudeness out. And that was that. Head back downstairs to dinner. Now, my kids think this is especially funny because they just imagine their father sitting repentantly in a bathroom for being disobedient and rude, and they laugh as they think of me with soap in my mouth. But in some way, hearing that story humanizes me in their eyes. It reminds them that I've been where they find themselves sometimes. I can relate to their struggle to obey and to listen. My telling them that story is fun for them, and maybe it's helpful, because, but it's also really important for me, because it reminds me that I should probably be way more compassionate and patient with the frail creatures given to my care, because they, like me, are so easily persuaded by those sins crouching at their doors. Whenever we read the story of Jesus' temptations, I can't help but get the feeling that we are like children gathered around a box of photos with their father to hear about that one time when even his faith was put to the test. Like maybe this story of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness is given to us so that we will be reminded of those words from Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Maybe this story stands as a reminder to us that God in Christ looks at us sinful creatures facing temptation and trial every day, not with condemnation and judgment, not with a how-could-you expression, but with the merciful compassion of a parent who remembers their own trials and tests and who knows exactly what their sons and daughters are going through. So here we go into the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4. Today's gospel reading comes straight after Jesus' baptism. And we read right at the top that the same spirit that descends on him, like a dove in the, in the waters of the Jordan, now leads him out into the wilderness. Why? To be tested. And so Jesus goes, and for over a month, for 40 days in fact, Jesus endures a religious, self-imposed fast, a time set apart from eating. This is a feat I can say I have never, ever, 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 ever attempted. But in my humble attempts at way more lesser fasts, like one day fasts, I can say that at the end, the pulsing ache of hunger is hard to ignore. And at the end of that 40-day period, when Jesus is famished, and weary, and possibly hallucinating for lack of food, Jesus meets a strange character amidst the wilderness rocks and sand, a figure called by three different titles in today's gospel reading. He is first called Diabolos in Greek, what we translate as devil, verse 1, but the word Diabolos means something more like to split away, like a tool one might use to peel the bark off a tree. This figure is also called a perezon, the tester, 
the tempter, the one who scrutinizes the integrity of something, searching for infidelity or wrongdoing. And finally, the figure is called at the end by Jesus, Satan, Satana, which is a Hebrew term loosely translated accuser, something in the Old Testament like a divine prosecuting attorney whose job was to make a charge stick against those who bear the name child of God. So here Jesus is, 40 days after his baptism, 40 days after he heard a heavenly voice say, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. 40 days of those words echoing in his ears, and maybe by now he's starting to wonder, was it real? Did I really hear those words? Maybe the voice was just a figment of his imagination, something he conjured up but might not have been audible to anybody else. I mean, that's the trouble with spiritual visions. After 40 days in the desert, who's to say what's real and what's not anymore? And so it is no surprise to me that the words that the Diabolos says to Jesus is, if you are the Son of God, eh, we'll see. If you are the Son of God, I imagine an unspoken really in there. Like, if you really are God's Son, if, you, if that voice you claim to have heard at your baptism really was real, well, let's see some tangible results, the tempter says. And really, at the core of today's story, that is the fundamental idea. What is being tested here is Jesus' confidence in his own identity as God's Son. What's being tested is Jesus' faithfulness and trust that God is who God said he was. Christians wrongly can think that, oh, well, you know, Jesus was fully God. Surely he never doubted, never worried, never would have really given in to these sort of silly temptations, right? Wrong. We must see these tests as real tests of Jesus' faith. We must see these tests as actually having the possibility for failure. Otherwise, Jesus cannot be said to have been tested in every way we are. Okay, let's go through three tests in the wilderness. The first test for Jesus was a temptation aimed at his present physical condition and his present bodily needs. Jesus was hungry. The devil says, let's fix that with magic. The first test for Christ in the wilderness is not a temptation to eat, but rather a temptation to rely on signs and evidence to support his baptismal identity. It's a temptation for proof, for rational agreement. There would have been nothing wrong with Jesus eating bread and breaking his fast. That's not the temptation that's at stake here. Instead, he is tempted to demonstrate his faith in God with signs and wonders. The tempter says, that voice at your baptism, that's not enough. Do some magic, and then we'll know if it was really true. Let's see some evidence of this claim, Son of God. Indeed, the same temptation comes to us. It's not about turning stones into bread for us, probably, but it is certainly about craving the concrete evidence to support the faith we try to have in our life. One scholar puts it this way, the tempter says to us, how can you claim to be a child of God when you are struggling with your big problems instead of being victorious over them? 
The tempter to us says, get rid of your problems. Turn your stones into bread, and then we'll believe that you have a strong relationship with God. To this urging to present evidence, Jesus cites scripture, especially from, or specifically from the book of Deuteronomy, and says simply in reply, humans do not depend on bread to live, but we depend on every word God says to us. Which is to say, we don't live our lives before God based on evidence and proof, but we live instead by faith. The word that God spoke to us at our baptisms, calling us beloved, that that is true, that that speaks the final word. We don't need to chase after visions or signs or wonders to verify this claim. It was given in faith. It will be received by faith. How firm a foundation we sing, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. Stop searching for proof and choose to rest in what God has already said. The first temptation. The second test of Christ finds Jesus at the top of a holy place, the pinnacle of the temple, the holiest site in all Israel. From this vantage point, Jesus can see the religious fervor and zeal of Israel, his people, laid out before him. The burning of incense, the sacrificial smoke of whole burnt offerings, the chanting of the temple choirs, the splendidly arrayed priests scurrying about the temple grounds. From his pinnacle viewing point, Jesus can take it all in. It's almost as if the devil appears to him at this point and says something like, did you say that people live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Well, let's see how true that is. What about the word from Psalm 91, Jesus? What about the word that says, he will not let your foot strike a stone? Jesus, do you live by that word? Jesus, do you trust that word? If so, the devil says, let's see it in action. Throw yourself down from here, and let's see the limits of God's faithfulness to you. Will God catch you? Let's find out. In this temptation, Jesus is advised to set aside wisdom, to set aside prudence, and most importantly, to set aside the laws of the universe God hardwired in, all for the sake of testing whether or not God was going to be faithful to his promise to Jesus. For us, this temptation comes, and it's probably, again, not about leaping down from tall buildings, but rather it is about making God's faithfulness to us contingent upon the circumstances in our lives. Oh, we'll gladly sing and enthusiastically pray of God's faithfulness to us when we've got evidence in our hands to back it up, when things are going swell. But when we're standing at the pinnacle of some difficult moment, when it's hard to know if God is going to be faithful or not, then it is difficult for us to assert that God is good, God is faithful. Jesus was tempted here to make God's faithfulness to him contingent upon a miraculous, last-minute, dramatic rescue. But Jesus shuts this pathway down by using another passage of Scripture and says, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Because God's faithfulness to us is certain and sure. It needs no renewal, even though our faithfulness to God needs daily renewal. The final test of Jesus is what I would call a test of vocational impatience. A test to have now what is yet to happen down the road. The calling of Messiah in the Old Testament was to administrate and usher in God's sovereign rule, a reality called the kingdom of God, in which all the broken things are fixed and the world finally experiences true restoration. The calling of Messiah was to usher in a day when death and dying and empires and divided governments and moral depravity and troop deployments and political corruption and all the rest of the murk of so-called civilization will be dissolved in God's new creation. In the final test, the tempter gives the starving Christ a glimpse of that future day and tells him it doesn't have to be a future thing. Bend the knee, he says. Bend the knee just once, and it happens right now. Acknowledge evil and chaos to be the ultimate realities in the universe just for a moment, and you, the tempter says to Christ, you can remake the world as you want. In one colorful interpretation of the life of Christ, uh, uh, given by one person, the, the tempter takes Jesus into the future to glimpse a war-torn world of our day and age, to see refugee camps and starving children. And the tempter says to Christ there, this isn't your kingdom, is it, Messiah? Bend the knee just once, and none of this, none of this suffering, has to happen. The temptation is for Jesus to gain the world, but to forfeit his soul, to allow the ends to justify the means, to give up his higher love for God's will to an easy immediacy, to abandon his devotion to God in order to short-circuit time itself. And indeed for us, how often are we also tempted to set aside the harder, lifelong work of doing the work of God's kingdom in order just to benefit in the present, to, to say in word and deed that God's command to be a meek and powerless and servant-like and gracious and forgiving person, it just seems too hard. Looks like too much work. We don't know what to do with a lifelong faith that appears too simplistic and naive to really work in our pleasant, present complicated world. We, we, we just want easy to see, quick, quantitative measures of our faith, and we're often willing to compromise the integrity of our faith to gain them. When faced with the temptation to gain the world but to forfeit his soul, our Lord responds by citing the scriptures a third time. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. There is no shortcut to a life of faith. There is no advance to go card we can draw that allows us to skip the hard parts. We don't get to press an easy mode button that just makes all the terrifying challenges before us easier. Jesus reminds us in this temptation that rain or shine, joy or sorrow, pain or bliss, we are called to worship and serve God alone. Whatever the cost, no matter if we labor a lifetime and see little impact, still, we are called to worship the Lord. And with that, these three tests for Christ in the wilderness seem to be over, at least for now. 
And Matthew's gospel reports that just like they did for Elijah, the prophet in the wilderness, angels show up to care for this starving, weary Messiah in the middle of a weary land. Yet without sin. That is how the writer to the Hebrews concludes his description of Jesus, who is tested and tried as we are. Someone who was in every respect tested as we are, yet without sin. I think that is the good news for us here today. It's not merely that Jesus understands our sinful cravings, though he does. And it's not only that Jesus has limitless compassion for our constant need to skirt the boundary lines of faith. He does. It's that Jesus, though he was tested, Though he was tried, though he was tempted to short-circuit the will of God, nevertheless, Jesus remained faithful to God's calling. Despite the barrage upon the walls of his very baptismal identity, Jesus did what you and I could not and can never do. He sent the powers of evil packing. In in Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message, He has Jesus say to the tempter at the end, not away from me, Satan, but rather, beat it, Satan, which is funny, I suppose. But it really does get across the tone in Greek very nicely. And the good news is that only Jesus gets to command evil to flee. Only Jesus stands toe-to-toe with the desires that ensnare us, and only Jesus can bid them depart. The good news for us today is not that we can do it if we try hard enough, but it's that we follow a Savior who already did it, and we can put our trust in him. Jesus knows the bitter depth of the trials that come our way, and he has provided a way out himself. Jesus doesn't rescue us from sin and make it as if we've never sinned again. Far from it. We have sinned. We do sin, friends. We will sin. It's fused to our very nature as fallen creatures, but Jesus has made it so that the consequence of our sinfulness is no longer ours to bear. His yes to God's will in the face of temptation made it so that we do not need to be dependent upon our ability to get it right. Instead, all we do is arise and go to Jesus to take ourselves to him. Our sins, our failures, our doubts, our pains, our struggles, our worries, our anxieties, our addictions. We drag all our baggage, all of our dirty laundry with us to hear the words of our baptism spoken lovingly to us again by our merciful Lord. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are a child of God. Like the prodigal son on the roadway rehearsing a speech declaring our unworthiness, God in Christ rushes to remind us that he understands the sharp allure of temptation. God has provided for us the way out. Tested like us in every way, yet without sin. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us sing of our... Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org 
You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.